0: A quick fact before we get into today's episode: there are less than ten thousand bilbies left in Australia. Ten thousand. I had no idea it was so few, which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate twenty cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for Mum buy one for the kids, buy one for your Uncle Steve, and help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the 5 of my life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's 5 choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Internationally renowned photographer Stu Spence has snapped some of the most famous people on the planet. His eclectic work has been exhibited in galleries around the world, and his pictures grace the covers of magazines as varied as Rolling Stone and New Scientist. An author, deep thinker, and special soul, it was such a pleasure to hear him discuss his five choices. Stu Spence, welcome to Five of My Life, mate.
1: I am so glad to be here, Nigel. This is like a big, big moment. Well, it
0: is. And, and, I, and I am just thrilled that you are here. Before we get into your five, mate, um, uh, have there been any other Five of My Life guests or Five of My Life
1: stories that have stuck out for you? Oh, Rob Carlton's is really something else. It's, uh, Wasn't he great? Oh, my gosh. You know, they're, they're, they're big shoes to fill, Nige. I hope I've got feet that can fill those shoes for you. Well, we're going to find out what particular story of Rob's touched you. The, the play. That, yeah, That whole story behind that. And his girlfriend... It just was a, just a very beautiful insight into a whole other world.
0: Yeah, absolutely fantastic. But we're here to talk about you and your choices. Mm. And as is traditional on Five of My Life, we start with your film. Now, you have chosen the adaptation of Philip Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Mm. It is the film that many critics say is the best science fiction film ever made. It's Blade Runner
1: 1982. Uh, tell us about it, Stu. Uh, well, so strange because I was never a sci-fi guy. I may be put in the powerhouse museum night because, and wait for it, insert drum roll. I've never seen Star Wars. <laughs> oh, good on you. I've seen <laughs> it and I wish I hadn't. <laughs> so it's just sci-fi is just not part of my life. However... My dad was a sci-fi freak, right? And so my dad and I weren't emotionally close. He was a lovely fella; uh, we got on really well. But he was somebody who was very private, who kept himself to himself. But he was very much immersed in uh, the sci-fi worlds of, you know, Isaac Asimov, Philip K. Dick, and somehow, somehow, Blade Runner came along, and I, I, I was immersed in this strange world where that that ridley scott had built of, you know, this juxtaposition of this, this this, uh, which, by the way, he sets in 2019. Oh, isn't that amazing? <laughs> isn't that amazing? You know, oh, it's sort of
0: unimaginably far in the future. Wow, that
1: yeah. is, let's just pull out a number, way in the future, 2019. <laughs> and he somehow built this world where, you know, this the, the, it, it's not so far from being what it is now. Everybody's moved off the planet in a living off world, so the, the Earth is still looks like the Earth, but these strange sci-fi elements that weren't loaded with special effects or anything. It was just this lovely, you know, and decked, you know, the Harrison Ford character, this sort of, you know, sort of downtrodden guy who doesn't really want to be there. There was nothing big and flashy and, you know, special effects blowing up. It was just this world that he created that I could understand. And for me... Looking back on it, what I do now with my work, say with my fine artwork, I look back on that stuff and I think, you know, I I was really interested in juxtaposition, and I still am, you know, this idea of of um, a sort of a, a, a detective that's just a bit jaded you know you know he's just crumpled isn't he and um and and he's in this sort of this other other complete other world and yet he's still this human that's the and I like that idea of juxtaposition and as an artist now as a photographer you know I think I've gotten more as a person more black and white as I've got older I don't know if it's the same as you it's like yes no I care I don't care but my my photography work I think still is interested in that you know that 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 other other part of me that i can't express um you know to anybody but i can do it with these photographs and so it's this juxtaposition these two people that live inside me i think most artists would say that and blade runner to me is that idea of you know old earth new earth sci-fi and a connection to my dad mate there's so much i want to talk to you about
0: so so uh Before we come on to your dad, but I really want to talk about that because you've mentioned him on a couple of occasions, Mm. uh, you know, before Mm. and and, and in emails to me. But the black and white thing in in my life, it's going in reverse. (laughs) Right. So so, so you're a weird, you're a weird rooster. (laughs) Our line on the graph is going in different directions. (laughs) Really? Yeah. So you're caring more and more. Well, I'm just realising... How little I know, and how everything I think is true, and people I've judged, and whatever. You go, I don't, I haven't got a clue, really. It's, yeah, life is in the grey. And mm. your work, which mm. is to everyone listening, to it, utterly sensational. In whatever you touch, you have the Midas touch. It is your work. Is in the grey area. Your your photos are up to in, you know interpretation, and that's you know what you intend, and that's fantastic. But I want to know why you are getting more black and white, and and how that manifests itself, and is and is it has it been good for you? Does it simplify your life or is it actually you wish
1: you weren't or whatever? I'm only just noticing at night. So I'm just I'm just sort of computing the whole thing. But I, I'm not sure whether it's that I don't care or that my bandwidth, because I'm a very caring person, but my bandwidth, I think, is probably getting more concentrated on certain things. And I think my my level of, you know, how much I can take in, has, um, is ju- has, has been very, very full of, of late. You know, I've, I've talked to psychologists about this and, and your, your memory especially um, it gets to a point where it just can't take on any more, you know, your folder is full on your desktop. That's fantastic. You- <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so just naturally what I used to worry about and used to uh, uh, sweat over I don't have time for now because there's too many interesting things, and so you've got this, this glass of magic potion, that 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 you use for your creativity and your life, and I don't, I'm I'm not prepared to take take sips of it for things that just aren't that important. Stew is full. Stew is full. Uh, Stew is full, and also Stew realizes that Stew's getting on now, <laughs> so that magic glass is. I want to be careful with that magic glass. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the dad, right, not
0: close to your dad, uh, source of regret or just the way it is or what?
1: Well, my dad's passed. Um, he was a, an academic. He was somebody that was whatever that side of the brain is which isn't the artistic side, although I think secretly he was. I think he was a loner. And from his background, and you know, we can talk about this a bit later, but he, he grew up in New Guinea, in the uh, in the twenties and thirties, in the highlands of New Guinea, in the middle of nowhere, uh, with a father who often wasn't there, so he had two sisters and a mother. Literally, I mean, I've seen, I've seen photos of this thing. It's literally a humpy, like a like a a wooden shack uh, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, with um, you know New Guinea tribes people. Running down the street, the, dirt, the dirt road for sing sings with these huge coloured feathers and carrying axes, you know this is what he grew up with and and I think you know he had to become the the man of the house very early for various reasons, not particularly great reasons. I think he sort of developed a you know a sense of it's 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 all on me, and I think he internalised a lot. And uh, and that became hardwired in him. With children, with anybody, I, I think he he kept a, a a boundary, and he showed his love through doing things rather than emotion. And I came along, and I think um, you know I was and still am a very emotional person, and so it was hard for me to get through. So as a child, trying to get your father's or mother's attention, you find ways unconsciously. Of doing that, and one of them, I think, was um was uh this this sci-fi thing that that especially Blade Runner, right? It's strange. I look at it now, I see that a direct line back to my dad. Now, when I first watched that, obviously I wasn't conscious of that, but looking back on it, it was me connecting with the father figure. Isn't that beautiful? It's it's a it's a you know you could easily just walk away and go, okay, he you know bugger him, he he doesn't. You know, he doesn't understand me. He's not with me. He's on his own trip. But you know that the child still wants to get the yeah. get the approval and the love, and you know. And I'm getting on.
0: So Stephen Biddulph writes amazingly about uh, our, our need for good fathers. And but I think some younger commentators are just are blind to context. My my step grandfather, we used to call him Uncle Leslie. He wasn't our uncle, but. Um, He said to me, I'll never forget this, that he never called his father anything other than sir. Oh, my. Not not I love you, daddy, or, you know, sir, you know, you you go, well, hey, there you go. That was his reality. So I think it's brilliant that now there are, you know, I try and be a loving father. I think my children, you know, get bored that I tell them I love them so much all the time. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, so I probably Mm -hmm. overconversate the other way. Mm. Um, But we can't. Change or beat ourselves up or blame people mm. who who were you know he's brought up in Papua New Guinea and he thinks his the way that he can be a good dad is stiff up a lip and never hugging you or whatever it is you go well that might be suboptimal now but hey
1: it is you know sort of, it's sort of it was what it was and you yeah, know it, trying his hardest with what he had and, absolutely and I, I bear no grudge yeah. uh, absolutely I mean in in context his sister my aunt who's the last of the Spence line talks about life in new guinea and and what a lovely person he was and what and what they had to do and how that hardwires in and and it become you become who you are and i have absolutely um, no grudge at all it's just a gee wouldn't it have been good if if we could have broken through somehow yeah to to put into words how you feel you know it's one thing to say i love you but how do you love me why do you love me in what ways does that impact on you when you say you know a whole bunch of stuff that you know those men of those generations like your your uncle they would have looked at you and gone bugger off
0: so so my oh my gorgeous dad uh, you know a military man you you know it wasn't an expressive thing um you know lovely bloke tried his best but when he came to visit kate and i in australia we had never had a dinner alone in, in ever i mean ever and I thought, do you know what, in, in my, you know, just read Stephen Biddle, off. I'm going to you know, build a connection with him, you know, la la la. And I said, oh, Dad, I think it'd be nice if we, you know, took you to dinner. Anyway, so, so I said, I, so I invited my dad to dinner. Um, and he said, why? <laughs> right. And, and I said, well, just be quite nice for you and I to, you know, share a meal, mate. And he, <laughs> went, he, he went, oh. Anyway. anyway and so then we went out to the – I actually did book. It's like a, it was a restaurant in Sydney that's on the harbour and it's expensive. And it's it just as a mark of this is important to me. And, you know, and I probably was, you know, totally too intense or whatever. Anyway, we sat down and his first words were, are you in trouble? I went, no, no. Do you need money? And I went, no. Are you getting divorced? And I went – no and he went into this catalog of disasters and, and then then it ended up with like I hadn't had got any you know I've got as much challenges as anyone else but I didn't have any major disasters in my life yeah. and you could see he was like so what the hell are we doing yeah.
1: here was uh, your wife with you? no 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 I, just I wanted, the
0: two of you I wanted just the two of us and, and so that's what freaked him <laughs> out is why why would I be wanting to talk to
1: my son alone this is too weird there's got to be there's got to be a catch you know when I the first time I ever went away, overseas yeah I was at the airport and dad took me to the and I was 20 or 21 or something my dad took me to the airport and he'd never he or mum I can't remember them ever really cuddling me or anything like that or kiss on the cheek or anything like that and dad and dad walked me to the departure gate and sort of had his head down and then, then offered his hand and I, I shook his hand nice <laughs> I'd never, I, that was I'd never Never touched him before, yeah. except as a little kid going out into the into the surf, holding. Yeah. I remember that. But he, he he instead of giving me a cuddle like everybody else around right, was was, <laughs> was cuddling their their loved ones as they went through the gate, he went oh and sort of oh, gave I, me his hand to shake.
0: <laughs> I love it. Did you call him sir? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? So we're going to move to your second choice on Five of My Life, uh, and I'm conflicted about this choice, mate. Because Uh you've chosen my favourite writer, and I'm a little bit obsessed with him. And uh, I've read everything he's he's ever written, and I've read lots of books about him. And because you chose him, and we have been talking about your choices, Mm. you have revealed that I have been mispronouncing his name for my entire life how so, do you feel I, I feel like an idiot and and, and when you when you uh, said you know uh, are you getting more black and white or let's go well that's an example of <laughs> Of how little I know. I, I I would have mentioned him in speeches, I would have been interviewed, and I have been calling him Somerset Morn rather than Somerset Morm, Anyway, so you've chosen a short story. I've got it in my hand now. Short Stories, Volume 2, Somerset Morn. Yes. There's two post-it notes. I mean, I've, I've read them all before, but there's two mm-hmm. post-it notes that you had in the copy that you gave me. Uh, one is on the story The Force of Circumstance, and the other is on the story
1: footprints in the jungle interestingly again again just by chance a link to my dad so this is this kind of fascinating thing that you know my dad grew up in the time with you know the raj and british colonization and what was he doing out there by the way um well my dad's dad was oh, he's all sorts of things he i think he was uh, he was doing a bit of gold prospecting um working for a mining company up there they were they were an interesting crew. It was very sort of you know Deadwood country, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So Dad had that that first hand experience of if if you if you want dispossessed white people living in the jungle. And um, Somerset Maugham, as you would know, encapsulates this this strange intersection of. You know, it's one thing for for the British Empire to to annex these countries. It's another thing to go and live in them. Mm. And so Somerset Maugham talks about the well writes about the human experience of these planters in Malaya, uh, rubber plantations, and them slowly going crazy, and how they adapt and don't adapt and go tropo under the under the equator. I love it because it's they're so old. I mean, these stories are from the beginning, sort of the twenties and thirties. And yet they are so relevant. And he writes so cleanly. There's very little um, fat to be trimmed, don't you think? His ability to write about
0: human weakness, to evoke time and place. Mm. His, one, of, one of his quotes, which I love, he, he is the only attitude to approach life is humorous resignation. <laughs> So, so those stories, especially the two that you've chosen, mm, mm, mm. you weirdo, are so dark. <laughs> they are very, very Mate, dark. I mean, one's a murderer who gets away with it, and he's quite a nice bloke, and he's got away with it, yeah. and he has no guilt. And the other one,
1: I mean, that is so sad. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's 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 set in this, you know, it's it's a jungle. You know, he, you know f- Somerset Maugham fam- famously said, East is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. And I've spent a little bit of time in Asia and I'm f- again fascinated by that juxtaposition. There's that word again. But that juxtaposition of a Western mind suddenly being transported into the jungle with, with people around you and things that you really are beyond your... You don't really understand anything that's going on. And you're trying to be the you know the, the the new owner of the land uh, the governor of the land and you haven't got a chance yeah. I remember I remember a friend living in Asia once and he'd been there for a long time and he said to me I visit him I said you, you seem to be really getting you know get on well with the with the local people here he said don't don't be fooled it's it's we are us and they are them yeah. and it it will come out, and so Somerset Maugham, you're absolutely right. It's human frailty. He finds those dark, strange little um, oh, what would you call them? They're, they're, they're weaknesses. Yeah, and it, and exposes them. Um, and in those melting pots, literally melting pots under the equator, these th- these lives fall apart, and he writes about them cleanly. It's not purple prose. It's just. And they're dark, 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 aren't they? So in in the 1930s, he was the highest paid
0: writer on planet Earth, and he uh, I've read three biographies of him. Was I mean I, I don't want to use the, the the worst swear word one can, but he wasn't a very nice gentleman. Yes, <laughs> it isn't that interesting. Where you get somebody who he he writes like an angel, really thought provoking. He evokes drama. It's funny. It's shocking. It's relatable. And you go, I'm loving this, yet uh, I, I mean, I, you know, sort of fell in love with his writing and then read read about him and thought, gosh, can I still like his writing? Uh, yeah, but I do. It doesn't make it any less good that he was horrible in his own
1: life. <laughs> you almost, you almost think, you know, why did you ever do any interviews? You should, somebody should say to you, just don't. Yes. Just yes. stay being. What's the upside? Yeah. 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 Well, well, what are we going to get? You're already, I mean, I did read somewhere and you would know this, Nige, that was he the first writer that got a million dollars for a. For a story? I, I don't know if he
0: was the first, but it, it sounds believable because, yeah, he, he was on top of he, – he, he wrote plays. He, he was yeah. – I mean, it's difficult to understand now because no one's ever heard of him. But in the 1930s, he was Elvis Presley meets, uh, yeah.
1: you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and, of course, famously, Rain. Yes. So yes. that was possibly the first ever play that I saw at the Ensemble Theatre with Helen Morse was Rain, uh, which is uh, chilling. And that's set in Samoa, I think. Uh, yeah, but but, but chilling – chilling the, the ballad of Sadie Thompson yeah oh boy and and uh, you know, the crashing down of the catholic church on that little island as they're stuck i think their ship is being uh, is being repaired and they're stuck and she's a a lady of um, you know disrepute and uh boy does that fall apart
0: oh i'd love it one of my other guests uh, chris mitchell the editor of the australian chose a human bondage i, I don't know why this is so affecting where in *Of Human Bondage, the character is a boy and someone breaks a pencil of his. And one of the other classmates, he's like eight years old or something. Philip is the guy, what he's called in the, in the book. Uh, and he cries and he's inconsolable. And the guy goes, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, it's just a cheap pencil. I broke my you know, I broke it by mistake, and I'm awfully sorry, mate. I mean, there's ten other ones over here. Why, why, why are you making such a big deal about it? And he goes, "Well, it's because my my father gave it to me." And he goes, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Da, 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 and and that's that. And then he writes, "I don't know why, but I just made
1: that up." Oh, isn't that brilliant? <laughs> that's and brilliant! And I mean, I rem- where did that come from? <laughs> I remember that forty years later. Where did that come from? Yeah, you know, it's it's. Um I remember. I think it's uh, Footprints in the Jungle. Yep. There's a moment where the woman, having heard that her husband's just been killed, yes, has been shot. She she breaks down in this this sobbing mess at this uh, at this club that they're in. And later, the narrator looks back and it says, "You know, it was he'd been killed. It was relief that she was <laughs> right. that she's breaking down with relief no. that he'd actually been killed." <laughs> oh.
0: I'm going to move to your uh, song, the third choice on Five My Life, and I cannot wait to talk to you about this because Mm. my research took me down so many rabbit holes. You have chosen It's a Kiwi band. I I idiotically thought they were Australian, so that's how much I know. Uh, 1978, Dragon's song, Are You Old Enough? Are you old enough?
1: Where do I start? So, um, yes, well, a great, great pop band. Uh, you would say a rock and roll band, but I fell in love with them. I was in a group of, of, of fellas and we were very, very musically uh, motivated. However... Dragon wasn't on anyone else's lists, so Countdown was the was was the big go-to on Sunday night. Everyone's probably talked to you about that, but it was a religious experience. Dragon came on, and I remember, you know, sort of being absolutely sucked into the vortex. Mark Hunter, lead singer, uh, charismatic, um, dark, you know, rock star, rock star, and kind of on the you know the edge. You can imagine him sort of. Kissing or killing you. Uh, and so I think looking back on it, again, looking for a role model, I think we all kind of do at sort of 16 or 17. I was I was uh, 17 or 18 then. So he became an aspirational figure. The way he dressed, the songs, how he moved. My mates thought I was a complete wanker. And so I had to keep it all hidden. Right. And, you know, he he was the first person. My first girlfriend worked in a hospital at Concord in Sydney, which is not one of your, your top flight hospitals. And I remember going there with her. And next to it was the Concord RSL Club, the Return Services League. And Dragon were playing. I remember getting out of the car in night nighttime in the uh, in the car park and Mark Hunter walking past in all his fancy garb and me just going wow Santa Claus is real yeah you know there's there's I think it was the first experience I'd ever had of uh, uh, you know, your pop star is real. You've been looking at him every Sunday night for the last, you know, five, ten years, and there he is walking past. I remember this, this sort of this strange, wow, visceral experience, and he looked incredible, and these flares that were about two foot wide at the bottom, and, you know, this incredible hair, and I just remember thinking, God, I, that's just that's just it. But the, the the great part about it is that, you know, you know keeping it all secret – secretly I joined the, dra- the Dragon fan club. Do you have posters on your bedroom wall? No, because they I think they were really crap. They were a crap fan club. I think they only ever sent out a couple of things. But one of the things they sent out before pre-this song was um, a, a newsletter which was just prosaic and crap. Like, you know, somebody's just gone, you know, Mark's uh, having a break this week and <laughs> Paul's, you know, having a, an egg omelette or something like yeah. that. But at the bottom there was a line that said, are you old enough? And... Indignant. I think I wrote my first indignant letter going, How dare you? I'm seventeen and I I have every right in one. Why would you think that I was not old enough and how dare you? And da da da, da. and somebody wrote back and said, It's the name of the next single. Oh <laughs> uh, right yeah, so so, um, dragon, and, and you know, strangely enough, over all these years, all the cool cats that were like, "Oh, they're, ju- they're just they're just terrible have slowly come round in my way of thinking night.
0: but well, I, I need to challenge you on this because because i I think that song is fabulous, and there's some amazing cover versions of it. I mean, the lyrics oh. are are. Uh, I, I mean I'm uncomfortable with them mate I, I, mean, I mean at least he's asking he's asking. Yeah, he's asking but, he's asking he's but, but, not but, you know yeah but Jesus we're very deliberately non-judgmental on five of my life but can I suggest your choice of role
1: model is ever so slightly <laughs> one could say suboptimal <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, how dare you <laughs> No, I just, well should it have been Hemingway or uh... well, well no because it's it just as a
0: life model and I've got this quote I was reading all about I'd never heard of the bloke um, I mean, it's this is Mark Hunter. He was quote an embarrassment of talent and supernatural charisma. Yeah, he held the promise of real greatness in his hands, but pissed it away through heroin, narcissism, and
1: self sabotage. Mm. Yeah, well, it's okay. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, again, there's you know, there's uh, there's always a dark side to the moon, isn't there? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, I when I became a cadet photographer um, at Kerry Packer's Australian Consolidated Press, I took the magazine I was walk, working for into um, doing a, a, a piece. About o- on Mark. On Mark for, right. a fas- for the fashion magazine. And so I sort of weaseled my way in to photographing Mark and I was so excited and it was, you know, this is my moment. The dream has sort of actually come full circle. And when I met him, he was really quiet and uh, withdrawn and didn't say much and... Uh, you know t- we went down to Rushcutters bay park and i took these pictures and there was very little connection never meet your um your heroes at the risk of blowing too much smoke up your backside you your photography is
0: sensational you've gone through lots of different uh sort of genres and eras uh, but there was one when you were photographing you know all the famous people mm. a- around the traps mm. a- and and just because what you have just said is are there other heroes that you met that let you down or or the reverse, heroes you met and go, Ooh, that Russell's even nicer than I thought he was or,
1: or whatever. Carrie Fisher often with those big Hollywood stars. Did you tell her you hadn't seen any Star Wars? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> but she had, the she had like, the presidential suite at the Regent Hotel in Sydney and right now, I mean, this day and age, there would be 25 agents and press agents and this, that and the other and you it would be very, very, um, you know, restrained how a photographer would work, you know, very contained. But in those days, it was just go to room 267, which was the presidential suite, Walked in, and she was uh, she was flying high. She had a few champagnes. She wanted to party. Ah. And so... Is, is that party with air bunnies, or is that party? Uh, well, um... Are you a delusional man? No, I'm... No, I, 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 a gentleman never tells... No, I, no, she was just up for for fun. I ended up having to go, I've got to go, Kerry. <laughs> she was having the best time, and I got a great photograph of her. So she was somebody that completely exceeded my my expectations somebody that um didn't clive james you know i'd read everything that he'd written he's a Cogra boy and that's you know only a few kilometers from where i grew up and i loved the way he wrote and i love his you know self-deprecating humor and i just loved it all and um <laughs> and again Regent hotel and I, it was for Elle magazine, and um, I had been, <laughs> I'd been working with a a very bizarre taxidermy shop in Sydney for many years, and I would hire props for shoots. I mean, there's a there's a great one with a bison head, and uh, uh, hanging over Andrew Denton, right. That was used in some magazine. But um, I thought it'd be fun. Somebody had said that he doesn't really want to get out of his hotel room, so you you start thinking, well, what are what are we going to do? <laughs> I ended up hiring a kangaroo's head that was, you know. Stuffed And I thought "Gee, that would be a fun idea to, to put it in bed next to him Sort of a godfather Australian godfather Sort of spoof And um, This had never happened to me before But I, I went to the went, went to the door of his suite He was plugging a book at the time His minder came out And said Okay uh, Just wait here for a second what, what, what did you want to do? And I told her this thing She said I'll just go and check with Clive She came back and she said No he's not He's not going to do that I went okay I and she said, no, he's not going to do anything now. So I'd I'd offended him to the point where he was just going to dismiss us. And and did he? He did. He dismissed us. But luckily, this um, lovely publicist said, look, I'm so embarrassed. I've, I've never seen this before. But we have got one of those life-size cardboard <laughs> cutouts for shops. Could you use that? And I went, oh, could I ever? You took a picture of that. <laughs> yeah. And so this is pre-Photoshop. And so... Your listeners might have seen this before, but these these are they're called standees, and they're um they're life size. It's a photograph, and they have a white edge around them. Yeah. So we cut it off, my assistant and I, and and I remember sanding it and getting it absolutely perfect, and putting uh, goggles on, it and then getting my assistant in the harbour, um, holding this thing down with the harbour bridge behind. And it actually looks like he's in the harbor. um because these days it's done with the you know flick of the switch, but then you know it, we had to have assistance underwater and all this stuff. And many, many years later, I showed it was it was for l magazine. they used it as a huge double page, and I don't think people realized that it was a cardboard cutout. But many, many years later, I, I had to photograph Clive again, who was also in a bad mood again. And I had a, a copy of this, a little, a little tiny uh, postcard, print And I said, oh, did you ever see that, Clive? And he just took it. He said, oh, good, I'll use that for, photo, uh, for social media. So not a, not a lovely chap.
0: It's when two worlds collide. Y- you are a professional and you think, I'm not just going to take any old happy snap of Clive. I'm going to add some value and take a picture. But for him, he couldn't give a fuck. His, his assistant is telling, you know, what have I got to do today? Oh, some bloke's going to take a photo. Oh, for Christ's sake. So I can sort of see in his head where what's important to you – I mean, it doesn't excuse rudery, but what's important to, to you, getting a great shot that's that's artistic and different and thought-provoking and rewarding, did, did, did. for him it's just like, how can I make this as – he's not interested in what you're interested in. No, and
1: he and, he and, his... and
0: why would he be? He's just going, oh, you know, if he could get away with not doing any photograph, which he ended up doing, then that's his – that's his perspective so that those celebrities that can step out of step outside of I don't need this you know if I'm Tom Cruise and some photographer turns up and says it'd be really nice if you stood on your head and blah 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 you think Arthur oh, you know I can't be bothered but some celebrities that they get into the moment of of what the other person needs and you go wow what a generous open-hearted headspace to live in
1: but it's a pretty remarkable thing to be able to do, especially, especially in the '80s. I mean, when Annie Leibovitz was blazing that tri- trail at uh, Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone, so suddenly there was lots of money around, and people were were willing to do unusual things yes. to make a splash and show another side of their character. But but the greats, the greats, exactly like you say, the ones that join in are the ones that tune into your energy, yes, your uh, your your quest for something interesting and arresting and different and they're usually plugging something yes. which is the weird part about Clive's thing yes he could you know he, he didn't really have much invested but he kind of did because he was he he was there on a book tour yeah you don't you don't go on a book tour and say i don't want to do pictures <laughs> or stories yeah so he could have found a middle line but you know the greats come along for the journey right what are we going to do you know and the, and often the the more interesting the idea it, it taps into another a, a childlike play with your subject, and suddenly you're in this other space, two kids in a sandpit.
0: I'm going to ask you, who is the celebrity that joined in and tuned into your energy that you like the most?
1: Look, one that comes to mind, and look, th- th- there are a lot, but one that comes to mind is the famous criminal lawyer Christopher Murphy. Um, and I think he may have passed away lately. I'm sorry if, if you're still alive, Chris G, <laughs> I am incredibly sorry. But um, this is very, very early in the piece where I, where I, was, I was transitioning from fashion into portraiture. And uh, Annie Leibovitz was really flying. And I ended up getting um, – the, there was a very fancy building in the 1880s in Sydney uh, called the Connaught which was, uh, you know, a sort of High Flyers lived in there. It was on Hyde Park and La-Di-Da. And Chris lived in that building. And uh, he was, he was um, an extravagant, wonderful, down-to-earth bloke. And I think he'd had his picture taken a lot of times. And, and I rocked in. And he happened to mention that he had a swimming pool. And, of course, there, it all just happened. So I ended up saying, would you be prepared to stand in the swimming pool in a suit? With uh, with your goggles on And he went, yeah, sure So uh, it, 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 He's halfway down the steps of the pool And his girlfriend at the time We decided, well, why don't we get her diving over the top Like some kind of MGM musical <laughs> <laughs> And so There he is standing there, deadpan with goggles uh, The complete um, Lawyer look, criminal lawyer uh, With this, this girl diving over Now your listeners will probably go. Well, that's de rigueur, you know. I've seen that a million times. But in 1987, that was really something else. And uh, and I think Mode Magazine, that was a, a really huge. They used that. I don't know over two pages. But there's a lot of people who've joined in that yeah. have got that. I've got go on, go on. And usually, how I get them to do it is um, I bring out a gun and no, um, I um I um I say. I just want to do something that people are going to stop and look at. I want people to go, what? How the hell did that happen? What's the end goal? I mean, as a as a celebrity, what what, what do you want? Do you want to sell your film? Yeah. Do you want people to stop and, you know, listen to what you've got to say because you've been misquoted? Well, let's work on that together. So
0: I spent a few years working in the ad game and the, the beautiful power of paradox where you do something surprising and irrelevant that's relevant and you go hold on that's a contradiction you go yeah I know what really wonderful artists like your dear self do is attention grabbing and surprising and fresh but in some way it's not just a gratuitous stunt (laughs) To your fourth choice, which is the place on five of my life, and you have
1: chosen North Bondi. Well, Nigel, I lived on the headland on North Bondi called Ben Buckler. Um, it's uh, anyone who's been to, to Bondi Beach in the afternoon, the late afternoon, will will, see, will have that image, you know, burnt into their brains of those flat-faced units, apartments, and houses with the last sun. My my girlfriend. Uh, at the time, used to call call the, us the golden people because I lived up on that hill. I lived in a in a in a rundown flat with the greatest view on the planet. Yes, yeah, so so that was my life. And uh, at that stage in my life, I was changing things up. I was looking at for different ways to live, to not just be a photographer. I was getting I was getting kind of jack of. There was something about, and this is completely I think egotistical. But there was something about. Um, photographing famous people, that it was, it was all about the other person. That the photographer, we didn't have a culture of looking at our photographers at, like they did in, say, America and England. With you know, you mentioned Avedon, there was uh, Lord Snowden. All those people were revered photographers in Australia. It wasn't really like that. You weren't getting enough attention. That's right. Also, I felt like I wasn't being authentic. I felt right. like it just wasn't tapping into what I was about. And at that stage, it was only, uh, it was just an. A notion that perhaps i wasn't swimming in the right river and so up and up in the headland there i started trying different things um you know i i i started writing newspaper stories every every week i had a column and i started acting uh treading the boards and i started television and i was i was Really interested in making television, so I made three or four pilots, and everything was falling over because I was starting again. You know, this is a young man's game. Starting, starting writing, and starting acting, and starting in television. And, you know, here I was, early thirties, starting it all again, and so I had the sensibility of somebody who was, you know, fairly well established as a photographer, and so that feeling of where's my recognition, starting as an actor, it's like, dude, shut up, you're a, you're a, you're a A newbie so that time up on the headland there was a time where things were in motion things were I was poor I was very poor and in the street on that headland in those days before it became a multi-million dollar the place that it is now it was directors it was actors it was musicians and we were all struggling and so my favorite place was a I guess it's in my mind But it's also still there. So it would be Friday afternoon and it would be summer and you would have been pounding on doors and, you know, trying to get a producer to ring you back and, you know, trying to get your copy editor to, you know, and just bashing your head against a wall. And I would go down for a late swim. And if any of your listeners have done a late swim in summer in Bondi on a sunny day, it is just, it's just divine. And, you know, you would have a body surf and you'd come out and the sun's sinking and th- inevitably there would be somebody that you know on the beach. You know, you have a shower and then you walk up to the RSL just behind and drink beer and suddenly all the other losers, <laughs> <laughs> artists, directors, everybody else comes down and it's on for young and old. And... You know, with the added extra that on a Friday afternoon there was the uh, meat raffle. And if you'd had a really bad week financially, you, that was important. You'd be, so, buying, you'd be buying tickets for, for meat. I, I
0: love uh, hearing you but also watching you tell that story where, where you have genuine affection for that time in your life. I, I, I think memory is a very, very, very imperfect tool and that's a good thing so when, when I think people glamorize youth and all that sort of stuff, but in our own lives it 's not bad to look back and weed out all the good stuff, so there's probably you know one of those often is you came out the water and you 'd been stung by a jellyfish, and your girlfriend had just dumped you and 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 your writing hadn 't worked, and you and you go to the to the the RSL and actually one of your mates said something that pissed you off and and then you went home and you felt a bit lonely or whatever you know it wasn't mm. the, the the version you 've just given me, but the version you 've just given me is real because it's your memory. And memory's the only thing that makes us unique. And I look back at certain parts of my life, and I could crap on about when I was poor, living in a squat in Bristol, blah, blah, blah. And... And actually, in my mind, it was sensational. But, yeah, it was pretty crap as well. But it was sensational.
1: Well, I I mean, I I hope I haven't glamorised it too much because it was. You know, there were days that were just horrible. But that RSL was a sanctuary. Yeah. And it was just this sigh of relief. Everybody, actors, musicians, all coming together um, and probably having shitty days. It was like a club. You know, suddenly, you know, it can be a very isolated place being an artist by yourself at a table, you know, I, I'd do a lot of the, my photography by myself. You know, it was it's it, it can be a very lonely place. So to get together... a tribe. Yeah, exactly, with this, this tribe who were all striving for the same thing, to, to to pay the rent and maybe turn a few heads. You know, you do. You do weed out. You're editing all the time. But I, I like to think of it as averaging. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing an average of all those memories and going, yeah, that's... That's pretty much how it is. And you're right. Some people will come in and it would just annoy you and that would start up a whole other yeah. dynamic. I have to stress, Nigel, how important the meat raffle was. I just <laughs> want to make that very clear. <laughs> <laughs> There's all these possibilities that you've got to try out, you know. You don't want to be on your deathbed going, "Geez, I wish I had a go at TV.
0: <laughs> now, your fifth and final choice. Uh, you've said that your possession on Five of My Life is Mum's
1: Plant. Yeah. You must describe it, mate, because I don't know what that is. It's 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 a wild story. Wow, what a story. So um, my mum passed away one night suddenly. And um, the next morning, she was in a, an assisted facility. The next morning, my brother and I went to clear things up. My job was, one of my jobs was to clear out the bathroom. And on her little uh, bench there was a... Ceramic oval shaped little uh, container thing, I don't know, about three centimeters long and two centimeters high, with plastic greenery like little plants in it. We were we were looking at things to donate and things to keep. I thought I am going to keep that. I wonder why she. It's a, like from a two dollars shop. It wouldn't have cost two dollars in a two dollars shop. It was that tacky. So I thought, okay, I am going to get that you know plastic thing. You know, she must have liked that, and you know maybe. I can relate to that, you know. Relate to her through that. So I took that. Don't remember why, but maybe a week later, I'm looking at this thing. I'd probably had a beer, and I was just sort of touching it. I thought, oh, I wonder if that's real. You know, it wouldn't be, but I think I went. Wouldn't that be funny? So I, I put a bit of water on it, and you know where this is going. So it it was real. So the soil that I thought was um, plaster, painted plaster, was real soil. It had just been. ...pushed down so hard, it was like concrete... ...and the leaves were so perfect... ...I thought it's got to be plastic... ...so I watered this thing... ...and then noticed a tiny difference... ...anyway... ...a couple of months later... ...I had to I had to put this tiny... little remember that these little plants are probably... ...I don't know, 20 centimetres high... ...so I put them in another little tiny thing... ...and lo and behold... ...this thing starts to grow... Cut to the beginning of this year, that plant was about one and a half meters high and two meters wide, this crazy, it's a bamboo thing. But this particular bamboo has decided to go completely wacky. It's like um, Brett Whiteley has drawn this strange winding plant, and it's in my, in my uh, living room, um, and it's grown in all these different ways. Of course, I'm, I'm just terrible at you know, b- b- gardening, so I've put these funny bamboo spikes in to try and hold it together, but I, um, it just doesn't work, and this thing is just spreading, and it's so healthy. You know, I, you know, I put a little bit of water on it now, and then this thing is just, it's just exploding. The, the horror is that I, um, that at the beginning of this year, I, last year, and I, I, I can tell you, Nigel, but I, I had a, a bit of a psychological mel- meltdown. And I ended up in a psych hospital at the beginning of the year and uh, for three weeks, uh, which was a great thing to do because I was in a very dark place. So all of my other plants I'd, I'd given to my brother to look after. But this huge bugger, I ended up – I couldn't fit it in a car. It's that big, right? So, so <laughs> I ended up giving – giving it to the guys downstairs saying could you look after this this is my mum's plant it's incredibly important to me they're fine so um I came back and uh, three weeks later and they'd left it for me and i I put it back in and realized that it was dying oh. and uh the leaves were all sort of dry and there was very little green on it and I realized I think because they're such lovely men downstairs I think they they looked at it and went, well, we put it in a sunny spot. And it had been living in a shady spot, and so I think it, it freaked it out. So now, Nigel, this is the incredible part, is I've, I've got it back, and I'm trying to bring it back to life. And the the poet in me thinks that maybe that was my mum, simpatico, being sick while I was sick. Wow. Or it could just be that it got too much sun. But I like thinking that. So so this is a work in progress. I am giving it little bits of water, care. I'm putting gold light around it. And it, I believe it will come back. So it, this is a work in progress, Nigel. We'll come back in a year's time and we can talk about it. I love that story. But I, I'm going to suggest that you
0: use the correlation and the connection only in one way. So if the plant flourishes... It means, without a shadow of a doubt, that you, Stu Spence, are going to flourish. <laughs> but if you go home after this and it's dead or it's dying, d- mate, it's just a bloody plant, <laughs> you weirdo. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference. It's just got too
1: much sun, you <laughs> yeah. dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> no, or or like in the tarot cards, when you get the death card, you say it's the end of One thing in the beginning of another. Yes. There you go. It's the death of the bad times. (laughs) There it is. There it is. Yes. So it's a very, very special plant that's that's very much part of my life right now that started as a little, honestly, a $2 shop
0: thing. I love it. Now, mate, there is one final question. And as I I, I know you listen to the show, so you know what it is, which is, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life
1: next and why? I would like to hear... Legendary singer-songwriter Mark Seymour uh, best Probably best known for his work with Hunters and Collectors uh, And he's been a solo act for many years um, I I call him a friend And he is a fascinating man With some very, very interesting ways of looking at the world And could talk underwater Stu
0: Spence, it has been a delight hearing you uh, come in and talk about your five. Thank you so much for being on Five My Life.
1: Thank you, Nigel. It was just wonderful. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow five of my life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20 year follow on from my first book, Fat 40 and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.